Please turn with me in your Bible. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. And we'll be reading verses 7 to 11 today. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. It says this. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they do not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, for you to, Lord, give to us a soft and a tender heart. Lord, one that is not hardened against you. Lord, one that is not obstinate and rebellious, but one that is moldable and shapeable. And Lord, we pray that today, through your word, Lord, that you might mold us, Lord, that you would form us into the very image of Christ. Lord, we don't want to be like that evil generation who manifested that their heart, Lord, was an evil, unbelieving heart because they always went astray from you. And Lord, when you spoke to them, Lord, their heart was hard against you, and so they provoked you to wrath. Lord, may that not be the case with us today, but rather, may your word fall upon good soil. And Lord, may there be found within us, Lord, a good heart, Lord, that is manifested by submission to your word. So Lord, we pray for you to work among us today, and Lord, we pray for you to speak to us today, Lord, not only audibly and outwardly, but inwardly, Lord, in the hidden person, Lord, in our hearts, and that you would draw us unto yourself. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, the beginning of chapter 3 of Hebrews, the apostle there urged us to consider the person and work of Jesus Christ, urging us there not simply for intellectual curiosity, so that we might have in our heads or in our notebooks certain facts about Jesus, but this considering was for the purpose of urging us to maintain the faith, to cling to Christ, to never forsake Him, but to keep as our focus Jesus Christ firm until the end. This truth he pressed by insisting upon the superiority of Jesus over Moses. Though Jesus and Moses were both faithful in God's house, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And this we saw in two regards. First, Moses was a member of the house. Moses was a brick or a stone in the building that is the house, but Jesus is the one who built it. Jesus is the one who took Moses off of the scrap heap and put him there in the house of God. He is the builder of the house, and the builder of the house is worthy of more glory and honor than the house itself. Secondly, we saw the superiority of Christ in the respective roles that Jesus and Moses obtained in God's house. Moses, he said, was faithful as a servant. He was a trustworthy servant. He was a choice servant, a preeminent servant in the house of God, but he was merely a servant of God. Jesus is not a mere servant, but rather he is the son. And as the son, he is the ruler, the inheritor of the house. Thus, Jesus is worthy of more glory and honor than Moses. And so we should not take offense that the apostle 
would give greater preference to Jesus over Moses. He ended in verse 6 by stating that we are the house of God. The believer, right? The Christian, the one who has made a profession that Jesus is his apostle and the high priest of his confession, we are members of God's house based upon the profession of faith in Christ. However, he attached to that a condition, a conditional statement attached to the reality that we are God's house. And that condition is that we must hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. We must continue in the things of God. We cannot make a profession of faith and then walk away from Christ. It is not enough to begin the Christian life. We must persevere. We must endure throughout the course of our life firm until the end. The passage before us today is going to take this truth and press it forward, right? Press it forward by unfolding what this means. The need of continuing in the faith. He will do this by way of example, using the wilderness generation as an example of a multitude of people who made a good start, who had a profession of faith, but who did not hold fast their confidence. They did not hold fast to the boast of their hope firm until the end. They had a start, but they they proved by repeated provokings of God that they were false children. They were disobedient sons. And as a result, they perished in their sin. God dealt with them in severity because they were evil and disbelieving. They did not obey God. And this was when they had Moses. Moses as their teacher, who is a mere servant in the household of God. Well, if they perished for rejecting Moses' authority, then how much more will we perish if we reject the authority of the Son? of Jesus Christ our Lord, who is not a servant in God's house, but who is the ruler of the house, the very son who has been set over it. No, we will not escape if we neglect so great a salvation, so great a Lord over the house, so we must persevere as well. And that's why it says in Hebrews 10:6, you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive the reward. We must endure firm until the end. So let's begin Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 today. There it says, Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice. Here he says, beginning with therefore. This is the same way that he began this chapter. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Therefore, holy brethren. Right. This is drawing our attention to what has come before. What he has just said, he wants us to further consider this truth. So we are reminded again of the necessity of listening, of carefully considering the word of God, of making use of what we have heard. It is not enough for us to have some knowledge of the will of God, but we must make a proper application of that word of God into our lives. God is not speaking just so he can hear himself talk. He's speaking for our benefit so that we might know God's will. And in knowing God's will, we might believe and obey the holy will of God. It says in John chapter 20, verse 31, John 20, 31, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These things, he says, are written 
but for what purpose? So that you might believe, that you might believe these things. Or it says in Proverbs 8, 4, To you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. God's voice, God's speaking, is for our benefit, right? For our benefit. Again, not so that we can have mere knowledge of the will of God, not so that we can simply hear the word of God, but that we might believe it, that we might obey it, that we might apply it, that we might practice it. We must always respond to the word of God with faith and obedience. We should never pass by any divine truth without considering its usefulness for us. God is teaching us in his word how we are to live unto him, how to live unto God, how to live in a manner pleasing to the Lord, which is our great duty and should be our greatest delight. So he is urging us to consider carefully what he has said, calling our attention specifically to the end of verse 6, where he says, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. He is expanding this concept introduced by drawing our attention to an example, an example from the Old Testament, an example from the history of Israel where the people did not hold fast their confidence and the boast of their hope firm until the end. He wants us to consider this truth that he has taught us in light of this example, and then apply it to our own situation. For when he introduced the possibility of falling away from the faith, the possibility that there are some who do not hold fast to Christ firm till the end, he's not dealing with hypothetical situations, but rather this is a solemn warning, a very real a very present danger that has been seen in the history of the Bible. There are people who have heard the word of God before who made a profession of faith, but who did not hold fast firm until the end. So this is not hypothetical, but this has actually happened. And if it happened once, then can it not happen again? If they did it, then are we above not doing it? Is it something that is not a potential or possibility for us? So we must take this admonition very, very seriously. Also notice, who is the one speaking to us here? He says, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, right? When the New Testament apostles are quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, they introduce these quotes in various ways. Sometimes they will refer to the human author. Moses said, as David said, as Isaiah said, indeed, Hosea has said, Sometimes they will refer to the prophet who spoke these words. Sometimes they will refer to the book of the Bible. It is written in the book of Psalms. And then sometimes they will refer to the divine origin of the Bible, as the Holy Spirit says, or as God himself has said. Here, the focus is on the divine author. And the reason is for the authority of God. He is drawing our attentions to God's authority, the chief principal author of all of the scriptures is the Holy Spirit of God. So when we are reading the word of God, we are reading the very words of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is speaking to us in the word of God. We must understand this. This is a pillar of our faith, the very bedrock of our faith. We must believe that the Bible is indeed the very word of God. 
in that when we are reading Scripture, God Himself is declaring His will, His word to us. All of Scripture, though God spoke through men, the words delivered by our prophets and our apostles did not originate in the will of men. They did not originate in the mind of men. The men, yes, they were used by God, but they were the secondary cause in producing and bringing about the word of God. But who is the primary cause? Who is the chief and principal cause of the word of God? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God speaking through men. Scripture is ultimately the result of the Spirit speaking in the world through these men. 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1. We have to understand this. Because if we understand this principle, this truth, then when we approach the Word of God, we will give it its proper place in authority. These aren't suggestions that God is making. These are commands. It is God's Word. And He comes with great authority. 2 Peter 1.16 for we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. And here, this is why the apostle says, as the Holy Spirit says. The purpose in, is to refer to the principal author of Scripture, to the Holy Spirit. And this is to emphasize to us the authority of God's Word. When we are considering some commandment to be obeyed, some duty to be carried out, some doctrine that we are to believe, right? the importance of the duty or of the doctrine or of the command is based upon the authority of the one who is issuing it, the authority of the one who is giving it. And God is the supreme authority over all things. He is our only sovereign and Lord, and His authority over us is the basis of our obedience to Him. It is our solemn duty to believe and obey God in whatever He commands us, right? Whatever He tells us, in whatever way He exercises His authority over us. This is the way it is in the home, right? The reason a child should clean his room is not first and foremost because of the benefit of having a tidy room, though there are many benefits to having a tidy room. The parent should not have to reason with the child and convince him of the benefit before he will obey. What is the primary reason that the child should clean his room? Because his parents told him him to do so because of his respect and obedience to the authority of his parents this is the first and primary reason why the child should obey well this is how it is with us in the lord is he not our father 
Are we not his slaves? Is he not our master? Is he not our creator? Again, though obedience to God's commands does have great benefit for us. The chief reason, the first reason why we should obey God is because he told us so. Because of his authority and whatever God tells us, this is what we should do. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus declares that all authority belongs to him. Therefore, we should teach people to observe all that he has commanded. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Their observance of his commandments is based upon his authority. Also notice in Hebrews chapter 3 that he says that the Holy Spirit says. Not that the Holy Spirit said, but that the Holy Spirit says in the present tense. Not the past tense, but in the present. Though the quote is from Psalm 95. And Psalm 95 was written some eight to 900 years before the book of Hebrews was written. Yet what the Holy Spirit says in Psalm 95, he continues to say in the first century when the book of Hebrews was written. And he continues to say in our own day as well. Though we stand 2,000 years after the writing of Hebrews chapter 3, we stand nearly 3,000 years after the writing of Psalm 95. We stand some 3,400 years after the event that he is referring to, and yet in all of them, who is speaking? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is still saying the same exact thing. Whatever is spoken by the Holy Spirit and recorded in the, one, in the Word of God is preserved for the benefit of the church in all ages. So whether he said it 900 years ago, whether he said it 2,900 years ago, he still is saying the same thing today. In the present day, the Holy Spirit says. Because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of the living God. His Word is a living and abiding Word, an active Word. And whatever is deposited in the Word of God by the Spirit of God remains useful for us to this very day. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is living and active. And all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is living and active. All scripture is profitable. Not one verse of scripture is an idle word given to us. Not one word of scripture is dead or lifeless, or useless, of a, or of no value to us. And this is because of the author of the Scriptures. And the author is the Holy Spirit of God, who is himself a living and active Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Holy Spirit say to us? 
Notice here the quote. Today, if you hear his voice. Here, he's quoting from Psalm 95. Psalm 95. So let's read Psalm 95, which is not a long psalm. But it is a good psalm. Psalm 95, verse 1. It says, O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountain are also his. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who err in their heart. They do not know my ways. Therefore I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. Here, the psalmist is urging the people in his own day to be faithful to God, to worship God, to serve God, to obey God. And here he brings forward an example to them, the example of the wilderness generation. They are used as an example for his own generation. Though Psalm 95 was written 500 years after Moses, He is using the failure of the wilderness generation to enter into the rest of God as an example of unbelief in order to encourage the people in his own generation to persevere, to believe, to endure. And is that not the same thing that the apostle is doing in Hebrews chapter 3? He's bringing forward Psalm 95, which is quoting back from the time of Moses in order to give us a solemn warning to warn the Christians of the first century of the grave danger of unbelief and the necessity of holding fast their confidence firm to the end. So today, here in our midst, we have four generations, four generations present in this one passage. There is the generation that fell under Moses. There is the generation of the psalmist from Psalm 95. There is the generation of the Hebrew Christians from Hebrews chapter 3. And then there is our own generation. For here we are today hearing the voice of God, hearing God speak to us. And the message is one unified message. The same message applicable for all generations. For whatever was written in the earlier times was written for our instruction that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. It says in Romans 15, 4, Whatever was written in the earlier times was written for who? For whose benefit? For whose instruction? For our instruction, so that we might know the will of God. What then happened to them? What is the example that he's bringing forth, that he wants us to see? He wants us to think deeply about this, so that we don't follow in the same sin that they followed. Well, notice he says, today, if you hear his voice. They heard God's voice, but they did not obey God's voice. They hardened their hearts against the word of God, 
until there was no remedy for them, until the judgment of God came upon them. So what should be the conclusion that we should draw? Well, if we hear God's voice, then don't harden your heart. And when should we obey God? When we hear the voice of God, what is the day that we should offer up obedience to Him? What is the day that we should believe the Word of God? Well, notice what he says. Today. Today, he says, if you hear his voice. It says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2, For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. When is the acceptable time to believe and obey God? When is the day of salvation? Today is the day that you hear the voice of God. This is the day that you should consider. This is the day that you should listen and obey the word of God. Now is the day of salvation. Today is the day to obey the voice of God. Whatever day we hear God's voice, that is the day that we ought to obey it. Well, are we not hearing it today? Today we have heard it, so today we should obey it. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, not next year. Not at the end of our life, but today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. This needs to be said because there is a strong delusion that persists among sinful men. That we can hear the voice of God whenever we want and that we can obey the voice of God whenever we want. That we can delay in believing and obeying God and we'll just make it up later in our life. We can neglect salvation, especially in our youth, in the prime of our life, and then we'll make it up later. Later on, right before we die, then we'll make everything right with God and we'll walk off into the sunset right into heaven on our own terms. On our own terms. But is this the way it works? Is this what the Word of God teaches us? This is a very arrogant attitude, a very presumptuous attitude to have upon God. It presumes that no matter when I am ready, the door of salvation will be open to me. And I can walk in, I can come in whenever I please. But this is not the case. The door of salvation is open today, but it may be closed tomorrow. So while it is today, and while on this day we are hearing the voice of the Lord, then do not harden your heart, but rather obey the voice of God. We must make use of the present season, right? We are living in the daylight. And when are we supposed to work? During the day. But the night is coming when we're not able to work. So we need to do the will of God today. The season of favor is upon us. Our faith and our obedience must be advanced when we hear the voice of God so that we are preserved from hardness of heart and from final, ultimate unbelief. And are there those who have a disbelieving, unbelieving heart, and they are so hard that there's no hope for them? There's no opportunity for them to repent anymore. Well, we do have an example. Actually, two. Hebrews chapter 12. We have an example in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. Hebrews 12, 16. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. 
For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. He found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. The blessing was gone. The blessing had already been conferred to another. It was irrevocable. It could not be taken back. So no matter what he did, there was no opportunity for him to receive that blessing. And this is an example for us as well, right? The blessing is there before us, so we better take hold of the blessing while we can because there could come a day when there's no opportunity to repent. Another example, Luke 19. Luke 19, this is what Jesus says to the generation, to the Jews of his own generation. And especially to those living in Jerusalem. Luke 19.41 When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The time of visitation was there. The day which made for peace was among them. But they did not take use of it. They did not make advantage of that day. And now it's hidden from them. And all that is left is what? Judgment. The day of judgment. The day of salvation was over for them. The day to make peace with God was over. And now there was another day that was about to come upon them. The day of judgment when their enemies would come and completely destroy them. We must take advantage of the blessing of God. Do not presume upon the kindness of God. When you hear God's voice, you are blessed with a blessing from God. But this blessing will be to our advantage only if we listen to His voice, only if we believe His voice, only if we obey it. We can't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And if we resist the voice of the Lord, there is a point of no return a point where God gives a man over to unbelief and to hardness of heart. And at that point, there is no more remedy, right? There is no hope for that man. Today is the favorable day. For us, it is today because we are still hearing the voice of God. For them, it was today at one time with that wilderness generation. But that day came to an end. The evening came, the day has closed, and they were hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. In that they did not make use of the day of salvation, but rejected the voice of the Lord. They persisted in their sin, and they are an example for us. What happened to them, we must pay attention to. We must carefully consider it. We must take heed, lest the same thing that happened to them happen to us. So then... What happened to them? What did they do? Verse 8. Do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. They hardened their heart to the voice of God. 
the command for us is to not harden your heart. He says, you, the ones I'm writing to, you do not harden your heart because that's what they did. They hardened their heart. That commandment is proceeding from their bad example. They had a hard heart. They perished in the wilderness because of their hard heart. So if you harden your heart, then you're going to perish as well because God is a just and a righteous God and he always does what is right. Therefore, what is the solution? Don't harden your heart against the word of God. The heart is the very center of who we are. This is why Proverbs 4.23 tells us to watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it spring flow the springs of life. The heart controls the mind, the will, the affections, everything about us. So if the heart is hard against God, then the man in all of his being will be obstinate against God. In his will, he will refuse and resist the Holy Spirit of God. He will rebel against the instruction of God. He will not listen to God's voice. Just as it is with concrete. When the concrete is soft, it is moldable. It can be poured, right? It can be formed into whatever shape you desire. But once the concrete becomes hard, once it sets it can no longer be formed and molded into whatever you want it to be. As it is with concrete, so it is with the heart of man. When the heart is soft, when it is tender, when it is humble, when it is a melting heart, then it can be formed according to the voice of the Lord. The tender heart hears God's voice, and then it is shaped and formed into the image of God's Son so that the man takes on the very life of Christ. But the heart that is hard hears the voice of God, and it is unchanged. It is immovable. The voice of the Lord makes no impression on that heart because the heart is a heart of stone. It is a stubborn and an obstinate heart against God. Acts 7.51, Stephen describes the unbelieving men in this way, right? And there's many different metaphors used to describe this kind of a person. He says, you men are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears and are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. You have a stiff neck. A stiff neck is one that will not turn. It will not turn to the voice of God. A horse that has a stiff neck will not turn at the bidding of its rider. Well, they are stiff-necked. And whenever God seeks to turn them by His Word, they won't listen. They won't turn because they have an uncircumcised heart before God. Also, Isaiah 48, verse 4. He says, Because I know you are obstinate, and your neck is as iron sinew, and your forehead bronze. You have a forehead of bronze. Nothing can get into that forehead. My Word cannot get into your head. And your neck is like iron. It will not turn. It will not turn at the bidding of God. To have a hard heart is to resist the Holy Spirit of God. And to resist the Holy Spirit is to fail to listen and to obey His voice speaking to us. When God's Spirit speaks to us, He is giving us instructions. He is teaching us the will of the Lord so that we might walk in it, right? So that we might walk in the good way. 
if we hear and refuse him who is speaking, then we are hardening our hearts against the Lord. And that's why he says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now, it should be pointed out that, yes, we are commanded to not harden our hearts. Just as Moses told the people that they needed to circumcise their heart. We are commanded not to harden our hearts. And it is our responsibility to have a soft, tender heart to the word of God. And we should pursue this and make use of whatever means God has provided for producing such a heart. But we must also stress and insist that only God can change the heart. Only God can melt our hearts. Only the Lord can give us a soft, a tender, a humble heart. So we must pray. We must pray to the Lord of the heart for him to give us this kind of a heart, for God to give us a soft heart. So Lord, protect me, preserve me from this sin of hard-heartedness. I don't want to be hard-hearted. I don't want to have a stiff neck against you. I want to do your will. We should pray that God would grant us such a heart. So we can't harden our heart against God. Now, he gives us a reason here. Notice what he says. As when they provoked me. Don't harden your heart as when they provoked me. Here, the they that he's referring to is the wilderness generation. Right? The prophet in Psalm 95 and the apostle in Hebrews chapter 3 are telling us, don't be like the wilderness generation. That generation that was brought out of Egypt through the ministry of Moses. They hardened their heart against God, and as a result of their hard heart, they provoked God. This is what happens when we have a hard heart. A hard-hearted man who resists the Holy Spirit, who resists the Word of God, he provokes God to anger. Do not grab a dog by the ears, right? Doesn't the Proverbs teach us to not grab a dog by the ears? What if the dog is lying there, docile, he's asleep, and you go and grab him by the ears and start pulling his ears, what's he going to do to you? Isn't he going to bite you? What if there's a bear over there, a bear over there, and he's sleeping, restful, taking a nice nap, sunbathing? Should you get a stick and go poke that bear and arouse him and wake him up? No, you shouldn't do that, because if you provoke that bear, he's deadly, right? He's dangerous. He's going to be aroused. And now great harm is going to come upon you. He's going to turn and attack you. Well, should we be provoking God? Should we provoke God? If we provoke God, is it going to end well with us? This is a battle that we do not want to pick. This is a fight that we are never going to win. Why would we want to provoke God? We should not do such. 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, this is what Eli warned his sons about. He tried to warn them, but they wouldn't listen. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25. He says, If a man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. If a man sins against the Lord, 
who can intercede for him? Here, he means it in the sense of, of course, we all sin against God, but we have to repent of our sin. But if we are obstinate in our sin and we refuse to repent and we persist in a hard heart in sinning against the Lord, who can intercede on our behalf? Who can go and quell the wrath of God against us if we are sinning and provoking God to wrath? We don't want to be found opposing God. We don't want to be found making God our enemy, provoking him to wrath. Well, how do we avoid provoking God? When God's voice is among us, it is evidence of God's favor to us. It is evidence of his blessing upon us. His goodness is being showered down upon us. But if we resist his word, if we harden our hearts, then we're going to provoke God to anger. So that instead of him giving us his blessing, he's going to pour out his wrath upon us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? It says in Romans 8.31. This is a great comfort to the people of God. No greater comfort than having God on our side. To know that we have the favor of God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But isn't the opposite of that true as well? That if God is against us, then we're in big trouble. Right? Who can intercede for us? Who can be for us if God is against us? This should strike fear and terror into the hearts of men because there can be nothing more dreadful than to have God as your enemy. For God to be your sworn enemy, how are you ever going to overcome that? How will you survive the day of his wrath, provoking God in such a way? Well, this is what they did. They provoked God to wrath. And when did they do this? Well, notice what he says. As in the day of trial in the wilderness, the generation delivered from Egypt by the ministry of Moses, they provoked God by hardening their hearts to his word during their trial in the wilderness. It was during the period of time that the people repeatedly manifested the kind of heart that they had that they had an evil, unbelieving heart. When God brought the people out of Egypt, when he delivered the final blow to the Egyptians by drowning them in the Red Sea, at that point, Israel was secure. They were at peace. They did not have their enemies against them anymore. God had delivered them from the Egyptians. They were at liberty. They had been set free from their oppressors. However they had not yet entered into their full possession. They did not go directly from Egypt to the land of Canaan. There was a period of time in between their deliverance from Egypt and their entrance into the promised land, to the land flowing with milk and honey, the land of Canaan. Before they entered into this possession, they had this period of time in the wilderness, a wilderness journey that God intended for their testing, a trial, a trial, a test for them where God would see what kind of a heart the people had. Were they true believers in God? Were they going to trust in God? Or would they fail the test? Fail the test? Would they manifest that they had an evil, unbelieving heart? If they obeyed God, if they proved to be faithful, if they manifested that they had a circumcised heart, a believing heart, then they would enter into the land of their possession, the land flowing with milk and honey. If they disobeyed God, 
proving to be unfaithful to him, proving to have an evil, unbelieving heart, then they would not enter into the land of their possession, the land of Canaan. The promise of God's rest was before them, but they failed to enter in because of unbelief. They had to hold fast their confidence firm till the end, but they did not hold fast firm till the end. They always went astray in their hearts. It says in Hebrews 3.16, Hebrews 3.16, he's going to be talking about this all throughout the rest of the chapter and in the chapter 4 as well. Hebrews 3.16 says, For who provoked him when they heard? Indeed, not all, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. They failed the test when they were tried by God in the wilderness. They did not hold fast to their confidence firm until the end. Right? That's the point that he's making. Though they made very loud, boastful confessions about their loyalty to God, they did not maintain their confession firm until the end, but no sooner had they swore their allegiance to God that they were found disobeying Him, constantly going astray from God, grumbling against Him, saying, God, you brought us out here to kill us in the wilderness. Though they had so many evidences of God's favor to them, did God not perform many wonders, many miracles in their very sight? They saw God's protection over them. They saw how God delivered them from the Egyptians. They had every reason to believe God, to trust God. But as soon as they faced the smallest hurdle, the smallest obstacle, the smallest trial you can imagine, God let them feel hunger for a little bit. He let them feel thirst for a little bit. They should have trusted God. They should have said, look at what God has done for us so far. Look at how he delivered us. Look at the promises that he gave to our fathers. He's fulfilling all of these things and we're seeing it in our very midst. We know that God will provide for us. It's impossible that God would bring us out here and let us die in the wilderness. But what did they do whenever they faced hunger? What did they do whenever they faced thirst? Oh, they began to grumble against God. They began to reject him. They said, he brought us out here to kill us. We should go back to Egypt. It was better for us in Egypt than it is out here. They did not trust God. But rather, they proved consistently, repeatedly, over and over and over again, that they had an evil, unbelieving heart. And they fell away from the living God. Notice in Exodus 19. Exodus 19. Notice here their profession. Exodus 19, verses 7 to 9. These are the ones who did not enter into God's rest. And this is why we judge a man not merely by his profession. Not without his profession, because we must confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord. But what we profess must be manifested through a life of faithfulness to God. They made a good profession in Exodus 19, verses 7 to 9. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, 
we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. There, what do they say? All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to obey everything that God tells us to do. Also, chapter 24. Chapter 24. Not only did they say this once, they said it again. 24 verse 1. The people, again, reaffirming their commitment to God. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu. Uh, which we remember those two, Nadab and Abihu, what happened to them? They were consumed by fire from the Lord because of their sin. And 70 of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord. But they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord has spoken... We will do. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. All that the Lord says we will do. And then they add, and we will be obedient. We will be obedient to God. Now, is that a good confession to make? Is that a good thing to say? Absolutely, it's good to say all that God says I'm going to do. And I will be obedient to God. And they said this with one voice, resolute in doing the will of God. Or so they said. A profession is only as good as the follow through. If you actually keep it. If you actually do it. Just like it is in marriage. The husband and wife making their vows to one another in front of people, which is good and fine for them to do. But those vows are only good if you actually keep them. If the husband goes astray and goes and is with adulteresses, then his vow is worthless because he's not keeping the vow that he swore to his wife before God and before man. Well, they made their profession. They made their confession of faith. But that confession was worthless because they did not follow through with it. It's only good if you actually obey God, if you actually do what God tells you to do. They made their profession, and then God put them to the test. I'm going to test them and see. I'm going to try them and manifest and see what kind of heart is in these people. Not that God didn't know what was in their heart. He does it for our own benefit, right? He tests us in order to manifest to us and to others what kind of heart is in the man. Isn't that what he did with Job in the whole book of Job? He tested Job, and what kind of heart did Job prove to have? Well, of course, he didn't have a perfect heart, but he had a believing heart. He did not turn away from God. He did not deny the Lord. 
well, God put them to the test as well. Did their profession proceed from a good heart? Did it proceed from a soft and tender heart? Or was this profession simply some temporary, spurious, spur-of-the-moment profession that was proceeding from an evil, unbelieving heart? God tested them, and what did they prove over and over and over and over again? What kind of heart did they have? They had an evil, unbelieving heart. In the time from their deliverance from Egypt until God swore in his wrath that they would not enter his rest was less than two years' time. From being delivered from Egypt to the time that they came to the land of Canaan was about a period of two years. And during that time, they repeatedly provoked God over and over and over again, resisting the Holy Spirit, hardening their hearts against the Lord. And then there, God swore, at that point, they're not going to enter into my rest. I've had enough of them. They're all going to die and they're going to perish in the wilderness. Now, what's the point that he's making for us? Well, what happened to them corresponds to us. It happened to them. It has been written down for us. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 6 says, Now, these things happened as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. 1 Corinthians 6, or 1 Corinthians 10, 6, also referring to the same incident, to the wilderness generation. It happened to them. It was written down for us. And what happened to Israel is a type of, it is a symbol, a picture of the Christian life, of what is true of all of us in our Christian life. Their deliverance from Egypt corresponds with our deliverance. Their wilderness wandering corresponds to the time of our sojourning. Their entrance into the land of Canaan corresponds to our entrance into the new heavens and new earth. They had to be tested. So what must happen to us? We have to be tested as well. God is going to try us. He's going to test us as well. And when is the time of our testing? When is our trial in the wilderness? From our conversion until our death. This is when God tests us to see, to manifest whether or not we have a true heart or whether or not we have an evil, unbelieving heart. We are now currently in our wilderness wandering. And while we are in our sojournings, we cannot resist the voice of him who calls us. We cannot harden our hearts against the word of the Lord. When God tests us, when he puts trials ahead of us, hardships, sufferings, difficulties, what do we have to do during those times? We have to persevere. We can't grumble against God. We can't complain against him. We have to trust God, rely upon him, and trust ourselves to him who judges justly. But not provoke God to wrath by resisting his Holy Spirit. We have to hold fast our confidence firm until the end. Isn't that what he said in chapter 3, verse 6? We must hold fast firm until the end. Many, many, many people make professions of faith, but it is only those who hold fast who will enter into the true land of Canaan, who will enter into the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. 
Were there any in that generation who held fast? Were there any who made the good profession, but then also manifested in their life that their profession was not vain and futile? Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14. You see how kind God is to us. Because he gives to us not only bad examples, but he also gives us good examples as well. Avoid the bad and follow the good. Well, who is the good example? Numbers 14, 20 to 24. Here, we know Joshua as well, but here the focus is on Caleb. Numbers 14, 20. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. But indeed, there he means he's not going to destroy them immediately. He's not going to make a complete end of the whole nation. He is going to destroy that generation uh, over the course of 40 years. He's not going to do it immediately. That's what he means. And then there will be another generation, so the people will go into the land, but not that generation. He says, but indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely, all the men who have seen my glory and my signs which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and have not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has had a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Here we have the bad example, but we also have the good example. We have the example of Caleb. Caleb was at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 with the rest of them. Caleb was there with them as well in Exodus chapter 24. He made the same profession as the rest. Caleb said, all that the Lord says, I will do. Caleb said, and I will be obedient to God. Among the voices of the many of the multitude that were unbelieving, there was one voice that was different. This singular voice that was separated from them. There was a man among them who was not like the others. And what was the difference between Caleb and between the multitude? They were making an empty profession. Theirs were just words, but not Caleb. He meant what he said because he had a different spirit than the rest of them. And what was the spirit that was upon Caleb? The Holy Spirit. He had the Holy Spirit, and they were still dead in their trespasses and sins. He followed God fully. He made a confession, and he held fast to it firm until the end. And as a result, Caleb entered into God's rest. He entered into the land of Canaan, and the rest of them perished in their sin. Well, the promise of entering his rest stands before us today. Do we want to enter into God's rest? Do we want to enter into the true land of Canaan, the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells? Well, if we want to enter in, then who do we need to be like? Caleb? Or do we need to be like the multitude? We must be like Caleb. We must follow his example. We must hold fast our confession in Christ firm until the very end. And we must pray that God would grant to us a persevering heart, an enduring heart, a true heart 
right? One that clings fast to Christ and does not turn away from him. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we come to you today thanking you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, how it is that you speak so clearly to us. Lord, we have no reason to doubt or to be ignorant of your will, of your ways. Because, Lord, you have made these things so clear to us in your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us your word, which is living and active. Lord, we thank you as well that your Holy Spirit, that he is among us today. And, Lord, he is still speaking to us through your word. So, Father, we are grateful that this message of salvation, Lord, this knowledge of your will and of your way, Lord, it has not been confined to only one generation. And it has not been confined to the days that are past. But it is still present in our own day. And Lord, we can say that today is the day of salvation. Lord, today your blessing is among us, Lord, because we have heard from your word. But Lord, we see as well that not everyone who hears your word benefits from it. There are those who have evil unbelieving hearts that fall away from the living God. Lord, there are those who heard you speak. Lord, they heard your voice and yet they hardened their hearts against you. Lord, they provoked you to wrath because they were disobedient, because they had persistent unbelief. Father, we don't want the same to be true of us. Lord, we do not want you to declare, we don't want you to swear in your wrath that we will not enter into your rest. And so, Father, we need you to circumcise our hearts. Lord, we need you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. We need you, Lord, to give us a soft and a tender heart. Lord, we pray that you would melt our hearts and form them, Lord, shape them into the very image of Christ. And that when the word of God is among us, Lord, we would... Make advantage of it, Lord, that we would be diligent, Lord, to, to hear it attentively, Lord, to believe it and to obey it. Father, we thank you that, Lord, all of this that you have done, Lord, all of this great salvation that you have, Lord, made known to us, Lord, you have accomplished it through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, it is only through him that we can be made right with you. Lord, only through his work and his ministry, Lord, are we preserved from being like that wilderness generation. Because, Lord, naturally, we would all go astray all the time. None of us would know you. Lord, none of us would enter into your rest. And so, Father, we thank you that you have provided this Savior for us, the Christ who has come, who has been delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And Lord, help us to see him by faith. Lord, to cling fast to Christ all the days of our life. Lord, to never forsake him, to never turn away from him. And Lord, we pray that you would safely bring us into your heavenly rest. Lord, again, we thank you for your word, and we pray that it would have its working among us today. And it is in Christ's precious name that we pray. Amen.